Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. This is a podcast from Minute Media. When it comes to your entire offseason strategy, how vital was it for Scherzer to sign here when it comes to that plan? I mean, it was important for us. It was, he was a target from uh, from day one. So <clears throat> somebody that we uh, that we wanted to have anchor um, or, or I guess really step in and uh, and support Jake um, and and be able to deliver a one two punch and and really, uh, you know, help uh, help build out the rotation. And uh, so he was a target for us um, from, from day one and, and somebody that uh, I'd mentioned to you know, Sandy and, and Steve, um, you know, it's not, not a surprise. This is, this is one of the premier pitchers in, in baseball, but it was somebody that I mentioned to them um, early on, um, you know, after I had agreed to come on, on with the Mets that uh, I wanted to make a target of ours and I wanted to pursue aggressively. How important is it for you as a general manager to try and eliminate the word hope, uh, hope that certain guys can perform at certain positions or in situations and rather get guys like you have done here who are proven? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's a good feeling, um, you know, and then as I just as I look at our, our position player group, um, you know, one of the themes of, of this, this this trio coming in of, of Starling Marte and, and Mark Canna and Eduardo Escobar is just is, is the versatility aspect. The fact that, that they can uh, move around the diamond, play a number of different positions really opens up a lot of permutations for the for the lineup um, for the manager. And so um I really believe in 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 building a uh, a position player group that can withstand the ups and downs and the and the variables that are that are introduced through the season. And so, for us to 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 feel really good about you know the thirteen guys um, right now that that we're looking at um, really. Uh, Really, really makes for um, you know uh, a little bit better night's sleep, I should say. Max Scherzer is the guy that that changes the culture. He's going to bring in absolutely. It doesn't matter where he's at. All he cares about is winning, and that's that's a fact. Uh, he cares about the you know what you're going to do for fun on the plane, because you know the fun <laughs> on the plane also constitutes winning on the field. I do absolutely, think. it does. Uh, that to me was one of those signings where you're going. You hear the other side, and you're going, 
why would anyone spend $43 million on one player? You spend $43 million on a player that, that posts every fifth day that does nothing in his life to go against winning. <laughs> yeah, no, like, that, that that alone is, he's a culture is worth $43.3333 million. You know, I'm concerned about the New York Mets. I'm concerned about the fan base. And, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, I made a commitment to them. And I want I want to deliver on that, and that's what I'm concerned about. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, December the 5th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And uh, I want to welcome our good partners, the Fan Sided Podcasting Network, and check out the good folks over at RisingApple.com. Well, what will we do now? With day five of Talking Mets, the locked out version, we're locked out over here at the Talking Mets Podcast. <laughs> what are you going to do? It's almost like, uh, I don't want to belittle a hostage crisis. It's almost like a hostage crisis. You know, lockout day five and whatnot. Well, Baseball's taking a break, and boy, was it a crazy week, and we capped it off uh, in the middle of the week with a special edition of the show as I broke down the Max Scherzer signing. You got to hear a little bit later that day from Scherzer. I know that hearing him speak, and and by the way, did Scott Boris not look like some kind of like Bond villain sitting next to him? I don't know if, you know, number two from... uh, Austin Powers. All he needed was the patch. It was. I, I know why he was there. I, I. It's kind of weird. I guess in a traditional press conference, the agent is always there, even though it's Zoom and it's virtual. A couple of things about that press conference was like, first, like, could somebody get like a better spot where the wind wasn't blowing? I don't know if that was Scherzer's house, Boris's office. It looked like it might have been a hotel. It was a beautiful background. I don't know if they were down in Florida. It was very windy. But could somebody have said, "Hey guys, the the wind. It's it's kind of." Put it on mute when the other people are talking. But uh, Boris being there and his smile and it was like almost painted on was was so bizarre, so weird. But that uh, truth is always stranger than fiction. So now that the dust has settled and the game is locked out and I'll get into all that. That's not really for today. What I really wanted to do today is take stock of where this Mets roster is. Get a little bit into the whole manager search because that's going to be the thing I think that will take uh, front and center stage now in the early weeks of the lockout. And I say weeks because I think this is going to be a long lockout. And then I want to round it out with my two cents on the Hall of Fame committees. You have the Golden Days era, the early baseball era ballot. There's a couple of uh, Veterans Committee ballots and I, I wanted to weigh in on that. I know a Mets connection is a big topic of conversation and that's Gil Hodges and we'll round out with that. As far as lockout and why we're locked out and where this is going, there's a lot of time for that, and I want to do a separate show on that. I don't really want to mix it up, but I will say this, 
and you heard me say this a couple of times, we'll be closer to Valentine's Day, the New Year, the next time transactions open up. And I don't think it'll affect, right now I don't think it'll affect spring training. But it could, depending on how committed the players are to change. Because this generation of players has to decide, you know, do they want to compromise and get a little, or they want to go full and a lot and and lay the foundation for a completely different financial structure down the road. And that remains to be seen, and that's another conversation for another day. But so when we started the offseason, and I had all those shows throughout the postseason, and admittedly special guest host and whatnot, as we didn't know what was going on with the, the GM search, the common theme was we just didn't know where to go with this Mets team because we didn't know the mindset and the philosophy really of the owner after a disappointing season, who the GM would be, would they go much more nondescript in terms of a, a front office, focus on analytics, not rebuild, but really go value equation and sell that. And it looks like the Mets under this owner are looking to do both, which is the dream come true for all of us. They want to be competitive and spend and win Similar to what a lot of teams used to do, specifically in the 90s, in the turn of the century, a lot less so now. Similar situation you saw the Arizona Diamondbacks do, the Yankees have done, and what have you. For years, the Red Sox and the Yankees would go after top free agents, and teams try to spend their way into contention. That was one of the things as free agency exploded in the late 90s. Every offseason, those big market teams, you know, who can we add to our chest? Uh, who, who are the best free agents out there that we can round out the roster and it wasn't necessarily about building and sustainability and having all these homegrown players that you grow up with and identify with. It was what mercenary can be added to this roster to get this team to the uh, the top of the mountain. With the Mets, to have to do that and really be realistically competitive, we said there need to be $100 million of additional payroll. And they're not too far off from that right now. They can compete now while rebuilding while continuing to leverage what seems to be a very strong drafting strategy and figuring out how they could get better at player development, which they have not been as good at, even though their drafts have been pretty stellar. And a lot of their prospects, even those the ones they have traded, have uh, wound up on the upper echelon of the top 100 prospects throughout baseball. The moves, and there was also throughout the month of October, the moves that they wound up making before the big Scherzer situation was Marcana, Escobar, and Marte. And these are similar moves that we applauded the Braves for doing at the trade deadline. Marte might be as close to a star, quote-unquote, as you know, you're going to see. But even Marte is more of a component player. Canna, Escobar, these are not guys that are sexy names. These are not guys that MLB Trade Rumors and MLB Network Radio and these kind of shows are going to spend countless hours about their free agent choices. They're going to wake up one day and these guys are going to go there. Getting component players, but good component players, not just stars, to build on the positional side seems to be where they're going. And they wanted to put all their resources in to going after Scherzer. And it sounded like listening to Billy Epler, listening to him with Gary Apple on the way in, on the clip you heard on the way in. I heard him a little bit with Michael Kay over at ESPN Radio. Leveraging Jacob deGrom and what is left with Jacob deGrom and the version of Jacob deGrom that we're going to see into his mid to late 30s, hopefully 
continuing to stay with the Mets was important, and they felt for the next three years getting an ace like Scherzer, a 1A. Now, whoever's Batman and whoever's Robin, that's for all you guys to decide, all you comic book aficionados. But that was important, and it was more important than doing what I thought was the better use of the funds, which is investing in a star offensive player like Javier Baez and going out and getting a younger, potentially next-gen ace in their back half of their career in a Kevin Gosman. And I think that Gosman was a possibility, and I think that was, was where they would fall back to if Scherzer said no, and then maybe they would have re-engaged on Baez. But let's face it, after Baez got the contract from Detroit, did it look, because the Mets had talked a little bit, it seems like, about a $125 million deal earlier in the offseason when they didn't have a GM, for an extra $15 million, didn't it look and smell like the guy with a potential opt-out in that contract really wanted to play shortstop? I know what he said about playing second alongside his buddy Lindor. For a couple of months, that's one thing. For six or seven years, that's a completely different thing. So maybe Baez wasn't even as much of an option as we thought. But they didn't go that route. They went the route which is going for the pitching, which I'm never going to argue with. But not just going for the pitching, but going for the whole enchilada. And I don't know if it was Steve Cohen. I think it was Steve Cohen that said it. It was about brand building. I think they understand, and rightfully so. And We've talked about it ad nauseum on the show. The position they're in, the yoke around their neck. The, the need for the perception of this team to change in the media, fair or unfair, so that they could go out and, and, and potentially be looked at differently out there on the free agent market so that a Steven Matz doesn't turn them down. That you don't go through a 30-day GM search and get turned down by all the best candidates, which in the end might turn out to be a blessing in disguise. And uh, I know we're going to talk about Buck Showalter and, and the Yankees will come up quite a bit later in the program, but... Think about the Yankees and how uh, you know Joe Torre never was supposed to be their number one choice either. And even Buck Showalter, if you read a book uh, by a, a writer named Bill Pennington from uh, uh, Chumps to Champs, Buck Showalter wasn't supposed to be the right choice. So does Billy Upler become, uh, and it's way too soon to know about that, does it become like the guy that nobody wanted but the best guy for the job? We'll see, but some good early returns. You heard from Kevin Franzen on MLB Network Radio coming in about the clubhouse culture and the winning pedigree and the competitiveness of a Max Scherzer. The Mets were always, like I said last year, a tournament team. And they are more so not only a tournament team now, but they might be the ultimate tournament team. And truly, depending on how this negotiations and this CBA goes, you might have another three or four postseason teams per league so the odds of getting to the postseason are going to be nearly 50% maybe when all things are said and done. And with this one-two punch and Scherzer having the ability, and we haven't seen Jacob deGrom do it because he hasn't been in the postseason in quite some time, Scherzer having the ability to come out of the bullpen on short rest and give you an inning or two, you really have the ultimate tournament team here. And even though you have a closer who I think is elite and dominant and can do so many things when he's on, but is so mercurial... You always talk about Mets can never win a championship with Diaz as a closer. Well, if you have a guy like Scherzer or DeGrom coming out of the bullpen to wrap up your postseason series, it doesn't matter what Diaz does. Diaz becomes a very good setup guy at that point. Uh, if they're both healthy, it doesn't take a genius to sit here and tell you that they're going to prevent a ton of losing streaks. There's nothing, None of those spiral out of control. If they're in a three-game set and you're facing both of these guys, more than likely in a uh, regular season series, you're, you're staring down the barrel of, oh, well, maybe I could get the one game they don't start, and God forbid you lose that game they don't start, you're going to get swept. 
This is very much, in my opinion, the offseason plan or the idea that they had when they went after Trevor Bauer last year. Basically, they went the same route with the contract. Shorter-term contract, more annual average value. And that sounds like what Steve Cohen right now in the short term, as he's trying to build his team, he's willing to invest on the front end to be competitive, maybe overpay. And you could argue the overpayment. I mean, Scherzer is older. Um, but, you know, he knows that the value of these guys. I hear about age, and I'm as much concerned about age as the next guy. But I go back, and I brought it up on the show, the Scherzer show, earlier this week. I mean, Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling were, I think Randy Johnson was 36 in 2001 or 37. Kurt Schilling was about 34 when they won a championship with the D-backs. You know, Randy Johnson was in his mid-30s when the D-backs signed him in 1999, coming out of Seattle. When they acquired Schilling and traded a guy like uh, Travis Lee, who was very talented and, and a top prospect, Schilling was already in his late 30s. There were miles on those guys, and they gave them a three- or four-year stretch. If you could get a three- or four-year stretch out of this group with, with Scherzer, and and, and ha- I love to say win a championship, but it's so hard to, to, to really promise that. There's so much that needs to go right. Scherzer even said that. But you could have crazy good moments, maybe win a title, get to the World Series. It's worth it because you're building that brand. You're building that foundation. And who knows when this thing is on the back end if Mauricio and Alvarez and Beatty and Vientos, whoever they have coming up and who they draft this year with all these picks that they have, presuming they keep all of them. Uh, who knows if, if those guys then seamlessly transition to a new era of the New York Mets. With this pitching staff, even though there needs more to be done, the roster needs more to be done, I know Billy Epler said that it sounds like they're pretty much done with the position players. I, I do think, and I know Cano is kind of this wild card and the DH is this wild card, and you hear Chris Bryant's name, and I have a I have a feeling that the only way a big bat will come to the Mets is if there's some kind of situation going into spring training or at spring training where they're like, hey, the lockout screwed me. I didn't like the offers before the lockout. Let me sign a short-term pillow contract and, and play here in New York and play for this team. I could see maybe that happening with a Chris Bryant, but outside of that, uh, you guys, we went through the scattering report, how the, the Giants felt his uh, athleticism was lacking and that he might not age well with the kind of player he is. You know, Brian is certainly a multidimensional guy that could play a couple of positions, but, you know, be that as it may. But right now, you really need to look at the pitching because you've went value-driven. I shouldn't even say value-driven, but more component-driven with the offense. You're you're asking guys like Jeff McNeil and, and, and maybe even Dom Smith and J.D. Davis. You're banking on them being better than they were, specifically McNeil. And I think we could go so deep into McNeil because uh, his Q rating, that old Q rating, has really gone down the, the toilet I see a lot of fans, especially since the whole um, rat raccoon story was uh, was leaked out about what really happened there. Uh, you know, you're get, counting on McCann being better, but you know you he could give you behind the plate, which is so important. I think at this point, we know Pete Alonso is a run producer and a, and a guy that could produce consistent power. We got to think Lindor is going to be better. You got to think that Nimmo is going to continue to be an elite offensive run creator. Can he stay healthy? That's that's the thing. I mean, there's still some. A ton of question marks around the offense, and you have a lot of them that need to come up affirmative. And because of that, you really need to continue to look at the pitching. And I still would have liked to see them go a little bit more aggressive with a three, four guy. You know, Stroman I thought got a a pretty good deal uh, for short term. I don't know if because of what he was tweeting turned them off to bringing Stroman back. I would have still engaged in that. 
Uh, I know you got Taiwan Walker, who is a below league average pitcher, and I think Taiwan Walker is a good back of the rotation in the rotation guy. Everybody talks about how bad he was in the second half. Remember something about baseball: you always kind of level out to where you're supposed to be. And if Taiwan Walker is a guy who's going to give you six innings, three runs on average, uh, even though he goes through these stretches where he's got you know top of the rotation performance for six weeks or seven weeks, he's a six inning, three run guy. Six innings, three runs. He's a four. He's a five. He might be kind of like Steven Matz in the sense where he's going to give you six innings, three runs, but he's going to have stretches where he could be three or two at top of the rotation. Tyler McGill, is he young? Can he can he be more consistent where he gives you number three performance? You know, David Peterson is someone that I've been iffy on from day one. So do you go out and do you go and get uh, a Rich Hill type who wound up signing in Boston? Or... Do you try, and I think this whole thing about Kikuchi from Seattle, I mean, he's going to probably turn down a $13 million option from the Mariners. I think the Mariners wanted, and his numbers against lefties are outstanding. He'd be a great, in the old Lugie days, he'd be an outstanding situational lefty, but he wants to start. He's got some potential. Can you take that under Jeremy Hefner and with some uh, advanced analytical approaches? And could you get the most out of Kikuchi coming over here? Uh, on on a on a shorter term deal. I mean, you're still going to have to pay a lot for these guys. You're going to pay 11, 12, 13 million dollars for a Kikuchi, which is very likely. Uh, you know, the pitching is expensive. You know, where are you going to go? And 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 I know you got you know some guys like Carrasco. We keep forgetting about uh, who hasn't pitched in a long time, but has top of the rotation uh, uh, pedigree. Uh, I think Trevor Williams is an is an interesting name that 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 impressed me as a back end of the rotation guy. Uh, you know, you don't have a ton of options where now you go. A lot of the big guys came off the board. So do you go scrap heap like an, an Aaron Sanchez? And these scrap heap guys, look at Paxton. They're still getting big contracts. And, you know, with, with uh, when I say big contracts, you know, Corey Kluber, guys like that. Guys that are such injury risk, they're still going to get big money. And they may even get an option on the back half. Can you go to Oakland and, and, and trade for one of their young players? Now, I think Chris Bassett is the best option because he's a free agent at the end of the year. Oakland's, Oakland knows what they have with those young pitchers. They know that trading those guys and getting the most value for those guys is is in, critically important for their rebuild. Billy Bean's no dope. And relationship with Alderson or not, they're not just going to gift these guys over to the Mets. Uh, who knows? You know, Sometimes you see how the Yankees get, grab guys and don't give up much. Maybe the Mets uh, and Epler learned a little bit of that mojo from his, uh, his mentor, Brian Cashman, and he could do that. But Bassett, to me, a little bit older, Coming up on free agency, just as good, if not better, than the other two guys in Manai, uh, Sean Manaya and, and Montes, and, and then and then that's where you got to go. And then at that point, the next is the bullpen. You got to go get a lefty. You know, I thought Brad Hand was as you know in a new, more compromised role is about as much as what Brad Hand was throughout his career. I don't know what happened in Toronto. Maybe that was it was weird how they traded for him, and then he got a, a couple of bad outings, and they they gave up on him right away. And, uh, you know, Brad Hand has a history in closing, so he's a bit of a backup if Diaz gets into his hiccups and what have you. The Mets' bullpen was good, solid. It wasn't dominant. I think analytics and defensive positioning helped them tremendously. And the one guy who was dominant was Loop. And remains to be seen if that... And, and right now, from a career point standpoint, that's an outlier, but that remains to be seen. But they need to go. So where they need to go post-lockout is they really need to say to themselves, look, I don't, even if they brought in Chris Bryant, which will help the offense immensely, they still need to look at the starting pitching. They're relying still on Tyler McGill. They're relying on Carrasco and, and Taiwan Walker. And, and that's part of this, but I think they need one more arm that they could count on on there. 
And I don't know if it's a scrappy arm. It'll, I'd like it to be someone who has some durability and some positive history of, I'm not saying being a one or a two, but being a solid number three at that point. Uh, those young Oakland pitchers fall into that. Is that realistic? I don't know. And and I'm not ready to give up on Jeff McNeil to get a guy that's a free agent. And I don't think they have to. Uh, obviously, if they go and sign Brian, it'll be interesting how they view McNeil and would Escobar become uh, a second baseman, but, but we'll see. So I think it's clear where they need to go uh, from a positional side. And I think they'll be opportunistic. But listen to what Billy Epler has said. They're not going to go out for incremental uh, improvements that increase their probability of winning very small. I mean, he talked about that the best teams only have about a 15 to 16% chance of winning the World Series. Uh, and give up the farm for that or blow up the payroll for future opportunities for that right now. Uh, it's really post-lockout. will be very interesting to see. Assuming that I'm correct and that lockout's going to be closer to Valentine's Day than it will be to New Year, and there won't be much time for players to make decisions. The wild week that was, how exciting it was to see all these guys sign, it's going to be that plus plus more when it comes to, to activity. The team is not there yet. A lot of positives, though, since Thanksgiving. Think about where we were pre-Thanksgiving. Stephen Matt saying, no, I'm not coming home. And how negative and negative and negative things have been pretty much since the, the trade deadline for this team on many fronts. Think about where they were and in just a short, even less than a week, where they are now and how much better you feel about them now and how much more excited you are about the 2022 season. But with the lockout, now is the time to talk about the manager because there is a need for someone to be in the dugout. And, and though I know, and I've said this before, uh, all my thoughts on manager have kind of been blown up over the last few years because uh, I just don't know where this organization wants to go. I see how successful teams are using different types of philosophies in the dugout. Uh, I still stand by my principles. And I know the big name Buck Showalter is out there. And I know that uh, uh, there's uh, a large consensus in the media that Buck is the right guy. But I also got the feeling reading Twitter, and I'll get to that, that there's another type of manager that people like, and that's the up-and-coming. And both come with risk. So let's take a quick break. When we return, let's get into who can manage this team, what I'm looking for, and do I need to change my philosophy from a couple of years ago when I thought this team needed an experienced uh, guy at the helm? I was all for Joe Girardi, and the Mets went completely in a different direction. And a wild direction that led them on this uh, interesting route to where they landed. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Mets need a manager. New GM Billy Epler has mentioned wanting an in-game tactician. Who better than Buck? Does he make sense for the Mets, Anthony McCarron? Yes, he does, Sal. He checks all the boxes in terms of the field general. Uh, he'd be a face of the franchise type, too. He's had success wherever he's been. He hasn't won the World Series, yes, but if you look at the 94 strike, changed the arc of Buck's career. The entire Yankee dynasty might have looked very different, and he might have won a bunch of World Series with that team if they played the World Series that year because the Yankees were headed there for a showdown with the Montreal Expos, by the way, uh, which would have been something to see. Uh, one thing that Buck would do for the Mets also – 
I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the players now. Steve Cohen has pumped a lot of money into this team, and there are some big-name guys on there now. They're expected to take a step up. I think Buck can deflect a lot of that pressure. Uh, if he is the manager of this team, I'm not sure that going with an untested guy, will be able. he'll be able to shield in the same way Buck will. I think that's just another reason why they ought to consider him heavily for the gig. All right, we're back. So who who's going to lead the Mets? Who is going to be their next manager? So funny that with everything that's gone on, we've com- in a way we've completely forgotten about the manager. And interesting that the Mets were able to recruit not only four free agents in a matter of a week, and obviously the lockout had a lot to do with that, and money. Remember, when they say it's... And Steve Cohen said this on WFAN. When they say it's not about the money, it's about the money. Remember about that. It's always about the money. Money is what's going to drive and fuel. It's the fuel for our livelihood. Uh, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's greed or not, it's the fuel for our livelihood. And uh, security is uh, the basic foundation of what every human being wants, baseball players being no different. What was interesting, though, was that all these guys committed to the Mets not really knowing who they're going to play for. And a guy like Max Scherzer, and you heard, I think there would probably be some things that they they had to talk to him about regarding utilization that were more important than the manager because the pitching coach really plays into that. But you saw how they limited his – he talked about it and it just – it was made me smile about how the Dodgers limited his pitch count, understanding they may have been doing that for, for Walker Bueller and Jose Urias. But they limited his pitch count and he felt he wasn't as good in the postseason, which was my biggest concern. So these guys sign on. I'm sure Billy Epler gave them an idea of the type of manager that he's looking for. I don't know if he leaked any names. Uh, I don't think he would. He's talked really about a guy that he respected in terms of being a tactician, um, you know, guy that you know obviously can work with different kind of analytical type of situations, a leader. I mean, all the things that I value in a in a manager. You've heard it so many times if you're a longtime listener of the show. You want a guy that can run a clean clubhouse, hold guys accountable. And manage that clubhouse, which has changed. That kind of mindset has changed so much over the last 25 years because of the generation of ball players that that are there. You want a guy that can manage a bullpen. Uh, in game is not as important to me. The bullpen is the in game that I really worry about. And you want a guy that can manage the uh, up to the front office, and certainly manage the media because. And Epler has talked about that. That's your face of your franchise twice a day, and what they say matters, even if these are throwaway lines, and you learn that. And I think Louis Rojas was an upgrade over some of the things that would have happened with Callaway. You know, Collins sometimes would say things, but because he was folksy with the media, they wouldn't care. I think Louis was so deadpanned and process and baseball junkie, inside baseball junkie type with the media, that it got to the point where it sounded like excuses. He talked to the media like he was talking to his players because you can't give up on your players. You can't browbeat your players all the time. And I think when questions came up where they wanted to see him use the media pulpit as a way to express frustration or kind of hold the players accountable, Louis was unable to do that. Give you another example of another sport, which is important. If you're a Knicks fan and you saw the game yesterday, and if you did, you know, like me, you... You know, you went and wanted to do something after the midway through the third quarter. But after the game, Tom Thibodeau talked about R.J. Barrett and and his struggles at the three-point line and essentially said in an 
not in a nasty way, not in a way which was yelling and screaming, but he basically said he's not putting the work in. And I think those are the things that the media wants sometimes from the manager. And now instead of making excuses, well, he's scuffling, he's working hard, and, and just putting a disguising or putting protection over the player so the media doesn't get on him, he basically called the player out. Now, a lot of young players today don't like that, and I, I, I caution about being careful with that because you could have a clubhouse mutiny, and a younger manager like a Rojas who grew up with these guys may not have had the cachet or the ability to get away with that. But, you know, in a lot of ways, that's the power that the media can have. You know, if I'm R.J. Barrett and I hear that, it's out there now. You know, maybe I go out there and, and I do something about it. It'll also tell me a lot going forward about his character and his viability of not only staying here and being a, an important piece to a good team, but is he the guy that some people think that can be elite? And, and that remains to be seen. So a, a different sport, but that's, I think, some of the things that, in terms of culture, that you want out of your leader. Now, everybody in this town, especially the guys who've been in this town long or grew up, as young writers during era when I grew up, really cutting my teeth as a sports fan, the late 90s, are calling for Buck Showalter. Uh, Mike Vaccaro at the New York Post wrote a, a huge column on it. You heard Anthony McCarron over at SNY talk about Buck. John Harper thinks it's a no-brainer. So on and so forth. Anybody who covered the Yankees in the mid to late 90s knows that Buck was so instrumental on that title team. We talk about how Sandy Alderson benefited from uh, Omar Minaya's drafts. Joe Torre's career and legacy was made by Buck Showalter. Now, you have to give Torre a ton of credit where he was able to quell the craziness in a way that I'm not sure Buck could have because after they lost to Seattle, I mean, Steinbrenner was in peak Steinbrenner mode, post-suspension, thirsting for a title nearly two decades since his last title, and the media explosion happening. He saw an opportunity with the Mets flailing to really take over the city and have this mega brand, which he did. And, you know, he saw Buck as somebody that, uh, you know, wasn't the guy to get it done. But uh, if you read a book, and I, I really, during lock, if you're not a sports fan of any other sports like football, or basketball, and you want to have, you know, some baseball talk, even if you're a Mets fan... I really recommend reading Bill Pennington's Chumps to Champs, how the worst teams in Yankee history led to the 90s dynasty, because it really outlines a lot of different things. And there's some stories that you probably have heard now because they've been republished about Buck, about how George, after hiring Tory, wanted to hire, you know, after firing Buck, wanted to hire him back and, and all sorts of things and, and what have you. But really, I went back to the chapter that I had read, and the thing about Buck Showalter. And I know what, and I see what some people are saying on Twitter. So let me let me back up a minute here because I have a feeling I know the criticism I'm going to get because I'm for a buckshell water. I, I'm concerned, and when we went through the whole um, managerial search a couple of years ago, the reason I went Girardi over Buck is because as much as Buck fit a lot of the checked a lot of the boxes, I thought Girardi was still more modernized in a way where with analytics in the front office that potentially because he worked for the Yankees and because he knew this town and Buck did work for the Yankees, but it was a long time ago. He was a better fit and, and we know what happened. Uh, but you knew back then during that search, I was not interested in a first timer. I thought it was critically important to get the hiring right, to get an experienced manager that could leverage this team and win. And I still believe that to be the case. A first timer, as much as I would have liked, and I thought Louis Rojas was going to be that guy and I wanted to give him another shot. But 
as much as a first-timer and the attractiveness of being the next Davy Johnson that could be here seven or eight years, or uh, even better, a Ron Gardenhire who was in Minnesota for years, uh, as tr- attractive as that is, I just don't know in this market, with this owner, with this thirst for winning, with this kind of fickle media, that that's realistic. So you almost have to go on those short-term, sp- short-term spurts. Think of the Yankees in the 90s. Nobody thought Torrey would be there 13 years. People probably didn't think he'd be there 13 months. What was he there? Actually, 11 years, I should say. 2007. You know, they, who knows? If Jim Lairitz doesn't hit that home run, he might get fired. You have no idea. You know, if 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 Jeffrey Mayer doesn't touch that ball in the outfield, maybe they don't beat the Orioles and maybe, you know, there's so many ifs. And obviously the strike hurt Buck. And, and not getting to the World Series that year, and then the disappointment of Seattle, and 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 how angry Steinbrenner was. I mean, remember, the Mariners were essentially still looked at as this crappy expansion team at the time. Nobody really knew how good, you know, Griffey was until he got on a big stage, and Randy Johnson was just busting out from going from a, a, a wild, hard-throwing strikeout machine to this elite starter. So, you know, sometimes I think Buck's, the perception of Buck gets dampened because he didn't win with the Yankees, but... If you go and read that book, the things that Buck Showalter brought uh, was very much uh, things that I think the Mets are trying to achieve. Attention to detail. He talked about upgrading the facilities so the players came to the ballpark. He believed in family and making sure that the players are comfortable, that their families are taken care of, and they're involved in the organization. Adam Jones, a former player of his, talked about how he held them accountable and how that made players uh, better. I mean, one thing about Buck that gets overlooked, everybody talks about the Yankees. Everybody talks about how the Diamondbacks won after he left. Now, he took that organization from dirt, zero, to 100 wins in two years, two or three years. Well, he started in 96, so it's really three years three to four years, but they didn't have any games until 98. So the first two years was building. But that's building an organization. Think about how hard that is, taking an organization from zero and winning 100 games the second year of existence. Not even the 69 Mets did that. And the Mets beat them in 99, but that was a tough Diamondbacks team with Randy Johnson. Then they go out and they get chilling and you all know what happens. And yeah, he's got this militaristic, you know, tight, um, you know, my way or the highway type of uh, mindset, which some have criticized. But everywhere you went, Texas, they got better. And then the Orioles, by the way, the Orioles were on pace to lose 62 Mets-level games in 2010 until he comes on with relatively the same team, and they go 34-23 and 23 the rest of the way. Think about that. And the Orioles then became a very competitive, competent team. Yeah, they lost in the postseason a couple of times, but we know all that random randomness. You know that's a cra- and that's a crazy owner. You know, Angelos was no better when Buck was there than he was, as, you know, going back to when Davy Johnson was there. Same guy got the Suns now involved. This this kind of shows you the kind of guy. Now this hire, if they go this route, would fall more more in line with what I'm looking for: the Thibodeau with the Knicks, the Pat Riley, the Parcells. Granted, he doesn't have the rings, but you know, sometimes rings are a matter of circumstance. Certainly that's where you want to go and they matter. I mean, look at Dusty Baker, what he did as an experienced manager with no rings, by the way, in Houston, in a toxic, terrible situation. I mean, how much worse can that be going into a team that everybody hates, that 
had their championship tainted, that had their whole team turned over from front office to manager and everything in the process of losing players too because now they're getting expensive. And he goes out there and he gets them to the World Series. I mean, come on. You can't ask for more than that. Can Buck do that? Sure, I think he can. Now, the question is, is he disconnected? He's been in media now for a little bit. Is he Bobby Valentine like uh, Bobby V coming back in 2012? Uh, and, and I think there was some uh, a recap, and this was on MLB Trade Rumors, and this is just a comment from uh, a fan. And he talked about, look, uh, his preparedness that Buck has and, and how he's into analytics. But again, as an old school manager, once he gets the data, he's going to want to run the dugout his way. Is Billy Epler going to let him do that? See, I think Billy Epler would. I don't think Zach Scott and Jared Porter would. Billy Epler, I think, would. Would Steve Cohen be comfortable with that? I think he's got to talk to Buck and learn a little bit. I know Sandy Alderson would be. At some point, we have to get away from people in a front office acting like handing a blueprint to a manager is a good idea. Because guess what? Players are not stupid. They could see through that. They know that that guy's not making decisions. And how are they going to respect that man if that person can't have any input into the in-game situation? The manager knows the temperature of the club if he's doing his job, if he's paying attention. The manager understands the nuance of his players. And I think, and I know some people don't like when Kevin Kernan comes on and talks about the nerds and everything, but one of the things that Kevin over at Ball 9, longtime journalist, said that bothered him about Louis Roas is that he's never watching the game. It's the equivalent of, like, people have games on their iPhones reading Twitter. Well, watch the game. You'll learn something. Not everything is about the numbers and about the, uh, the hot take. So I know I'm going to disappoint some people because I'm taking the, the, the company line here or the media line, and I'll quote one of our, uh, our good friends, Joe, over on Twitter, jmoney8655, saying, you know, please just don't go with the easy choice of Buck. It won't work. He won't mesh well with the analytics department. Look into a Spada, uh, you know, former Yankee, Epler connection, very well-versed in analytics, learned on the hinge, Girardi, and Dusty. That's a fair comment. A Spada is a big hotshot candidate. And maybe there's a lot of Buck Showalter in him, and Epler wants to go that route. And and I'm going to have to say, at this point, because I believe the owner, Steve Cohen, is going to be involved, you, all you could do is trust. But you better be right, because if that guy's a disaster, and you brought in all this high-priced talent, and he's a disaster, you have now, uh, for the third time in the last three managerial hires, actually the fourth if you count Beltron, the fourth, you've made a bad pick. And every time you make a bad hire, it sets you back further and further and further. It's like, you know, the water in the boat. The all it is, eventually you're going to sink. You have to be right. And maybe Buck's only a short-term person. And that's okay, three, four years. And maybe during those three, four years, you figure out, is it possible to pay someone big money to come over here and be his next guy? But remember, how many hotshot managers really, at the end of the day, be really become hotshot managers? What, Alex Cora? I mean, John Farrell was a hotshot manager at one point. A.J. Hinch was fired and was looked at as a complete failure. And I know for a fact that's actually the direction the Mets wanted to go. That was before the signs get stealing. They wanted to steal him out of his contract and it just couldn't work. That's what Brody wanted to do because of their connection. So I, I don't think it's a one and that's it. 
because you also have John Gibbons and he's got some experience. But I think it's pretty clear that if you want the most credible guy that understands this market, that can address the culture issues and maybe some of the sloppiness that goes on in this organization, Buck Schulwater's that guy. I guarantee you there won't be a horse in the dugout when Buck Schulwater's the manager. Now you can say, well, that's, you know, this new generation. They're not going to like that. You know, at some point, the new generation has to realize not everything started when they were born. Not everything has to change. The world survived a long time before a 22-year-old came into it. Just like the world's going to survive a long time when I'm long gone. And you're long gone. So sometimes, you know, and I agree, I read this in the, in the book Cheated with A.J. Hinch. Sometimes leadership is knowing how much you can let somebody get away with. And maybe Buck has to learn that that line was here and now it's here. But where this team is now and the kind of players they're bringing in, it's really no different than Arizona in 99 or the Yankees in 95. It really isn't. You know, to a certain degree, when they brought Terry Francona over the Red Sox, uh, you know, you know, failed manager, you know, he was a nobody. He was a nobody. He had no rings. I think they must have to go that route. I think going a first-time manager, even with a guy like Espada who has Yankee ties, and I get it, I think it's too risky. And also, by the way, and this is what you're going to get a lot of, and I've said this before, I said it with the GM search, I'm going to say it again, because you're going to see it. There's going to be the media throwing a lot of stuff up against the wall. They have no insider information with this organization. The closest person to insider information is Martino and maybe to a lesser degree, Heyman. And that is because of the Mets, not because of those guys not doing their job. Nobody on the beat has this inside information. They proved it with the GM search. They proved it with the free agents. They had no inkling, and it's going to continue And Sandy likes that. I think Cohen likes that. And Cohen, to a certain degree, said to respect the privacy in the process, he doesn't want leaks. And guess what? He's going to probably learn who the leakers are, and they may be fired. You know, I could see a guy like that putting the fear of God in people. And thankfully, it stinks for us. It really does. But thank God for that, because it's it's, it's a clown show. So you're going to hear managers like Bob. Every time there's a manager opening, Bob Guerin, because, you know, Sandy, all this in connection. Bob Guerin hasn't managed in, in, in over a decade. Wasn't really a good manager his first time. He was a nice bench coach. And then you're going to have the former Mets that the fans fall in love with, Granderson and Wright. Granderson just stopped playing two years ago. He hasn't coached. He hasn't done anything. Does charity work. Good for him. Nice guy. Good, strong, quiet leader. Uh, uh, you know, goes out and did his job. I don't know if he can manage. David Wright, guys, come on. David Wright hasn't even come back to do alumni stuff. You think he wants to, with two little kids, go out? And get in this sauce and this grind and do two interviews a day and be on the on the hot seat. And remember something for players, especially former uh, Hall of Famers. You're going to get fired. And it's when you get fired and the day you get fired, it's going to be ugly. Do you want your last memory to be of walked out the back door as a failed manager in this uniform? Regardless of the fact that you may or may not have been successful in one. Because that's where it goes. It goes for everybody. Unless you step away. Very few people get to step away. Carlos Beltran, I was open-minded to that hire. It wasn't my first choice. I think he brings some really good skills to the table. And I don't mean just the sign stealing and getting about the tipping. Uh, I never saw him as a player, as that kind of person, that kind of leader. I think he evolved into that. Is that more lionized by the media? Perhaps. But if you read the book Cheated by Andy Martino, and you see how he handled an opportunity 
to save his job. Because the Mets did not want to fire him, per se. And there were people like Omar Minaya and Terry Collins trying to stump for him. How he shut down, similar to how he used to shut down during tough times with the media. Not sure that's the guy you want in your dugout. So the whole fantasy and then the, the progressive candidates that you guys like to throw out there. I mean, think about where we are just three weeks later. Everybody was ready to hire a, a Red Sox executive because she was a female. Without, know, without just reading the resume and saying, this is not a fit. Like, that's Twitter. Like, social engineering, that's not what these jobs are about. It's about finding the right person for the right organization at the right time. And whatever they turn out to be, that's secondary. Oh, I got Grandison, great guy, CUNY service, African-American, all good stuff. All good stuff. Not, not meaning that he's the bright candidate right now. Could you maybe be a coach for a little bit? And I said the same thing about this about Gary Carter. So it has nothing to do with Grandison or race or anything. When Gary Carter wanted to get greenlit to be the Mets manager... You know, Gary, you were a St. Lucie manager. And I talked to Gary, God rest his soul, one-on-one. I saw him at the Ducks game. I talked to him on the show. I wasn't ready to hand the managerial job. Yeah, he was a leader. He was rah, 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 this and that. So much more to that. Now, maybe I look at things differently now than I did back in 2007, but still. So I'm not saying it's a one-person show. What I am saying is experienced managers need to be given the benefit of the doubt and guess what there really is only one choice and that's that guy I don't know I mean Bruce Boche Mike Socher out of the game I'm not sure their energy levels there like to me Buck out of all the experienced guys might be the least dated guy out there I think he could be the Mets Dusty Baker and I think that's the direction they have to go and I'm not going to sit here and complain and I'm going to give them the benefit of that if, if uh, Spot is the choice or there's another name that we're not thinking about. Maybe a uh, Aaron Boone type name that we're not thinking about. But I think that's a huge risk. And you better be right. Because if you're wrong again, that's the first domino that goes down in this second chance that we're giving the Steve Cohen era. Not that there's much of a choice because he's going to own the team for a while unless he gets bored of this so he can get 50 chances. But be that as it may. All right. That's where we start. Beginning of the managerial search. Let's not get carried away with silly names because they're former Mets or throw stuff up against the wall from the media. Be logical. And I think Buck Showalter is the early leader out of the clubhouse. We'll see where that goes. All right, let's take a quick break. Final segment coming up. Can Gil Hodges finally get into the Hall of Fame? The long-awaited time. I'll give you my thoughts about Gil and some of the other Veterans Committee candidates. That and more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. And I figured the final segment would include a little bit about the Hall of Fame. Now, not the regular Hall of Fame vote. We'll get to that. And with the lockout, we may have a lot of time to talk about the Hall of Fame. And, you know, as things dry up and the Mets hire a manager, we're going to have to figure that out. I got some thoughts. That's for another day. But... Uh, so there's a couple of ballots, you know, golden era, early baseball era. I can't remember what the names of it. Let me bring it up over here so I get this. So it's the golden days era, early baseball era. Both are being voted on. 
There is a 16-member Hall of Fame board. That's the Veterans Committee. Now, they've mixed it up a little bit where it's not just players. they got executives and historians, guys like Steve Hurt. I think you guys remember the Elias Baseball Analyst. Uh, he of that fame. I believe it's he. I don't know if it's his family or he, but he of that fame. you got former players like Ozzie Smith and Bud Selig is on it and John Scherholtz and Fergie Jenkins and Mike Schmidt and Rod Carew and... Even Kim Ning is on the uh, executive part of the board. Al Avila, you know, Ken Kendrick, Bill DeWitt. So you've got a diverse panel there of different types of stakeholders in baseball. So he- here's what I'm going to say. First on the uh, early baseball era committee, which includes sometimes players from the 1800s and a number of Negro League players in, in that situation. And I think it's great that baseball, the charm of it is its history, good, bad, or indifferent. I don't, I'm not for erasing history. I'm not for when colleges find a scandal, you take their banner down because uh, Reggie Bush took uh, money from a booster. You and I can't have a lobotomy. We saw the team win in college. We saw all that happened. It's part of history. You learn from it. And segregation and what happened with baseball for many, many years as well as the country, not good. And watered down the product. I mean, let's face it. Baseball watered down its own product for a long, long, long time. And to a certain degree, I hold the players, and it's look, it was the world we lived in, so I have to hold them accountable to it. I can't just absolve them from it, but I look at the players a little differently. Now, for me, I can't comment on any of these guys on this list, which run from Bill Dallin, Allie Reynolds, to Buck O'Neill, uh, a guy that the media loves, who was a, a real uh, historian that used to spend time talking to many members of the media later years in his life, and I've spoken to those who have interacted with Buck, and they love him. Uh, So I can't speak about any of these guys, and obviously the Negro Leagues, because of the lack of structure, it was basically a lot of barnstorming, and it wasn't looked at as a professional league, even though the talent was every bit that in some quarters is baseball, and if you listen to some that uh, have passed down stories through generations, remember stories get lionized as time goes on, but there were some players there that seriously would have uh, been all-time greats, and I'm, there's no doubt that that's the case. So uh, I can't comment on these guys. I certainly think that there's going to be someone getting elected from this group. I don't think it should be Allie Reynolds, who had a, a solid career for the Yankees, and I can't speak for any of these Negro League players, but hopefully it, it, whoever does get elected from this group, uh, and if it's a Negro League player, represents from a player perspective, and obviously the significance of the social implications of embracing the Negro Leagues more. Uh, Hopefully that player matches up to the social ramifications of it. Because you don't want to just elect somebody because they were good at storytelling in the Negro Leagues and you got to get somebody in. That that waters down what already is a product that hasn't gotten its due. So I hope that the committee, I don't know if any of those guys that I mentioned, how much they really know about the Negro Leagues. I'm sure that they have much more access to those that were if not around, you know, have been passed down from that era. And I hope that it is done well. And I hope that they bring somebody in that represents that typical situation as best as possible. And I think it's really good to see how they're embracing the Negro League history and what have you. Statistically, I have a lot of problems with them putting it on par because, and I have a lot of problems with stats from earlier eras. As we get later and later and more advanced in terms of baseball stat keeping, you're almost going to have different criteria because we have so many stats today that we didn't even have 10 years ago. So even there are guys from 2001 that it's hard to evaluate versus today because of all the stats that have been 
tabulated and, and the ways we break things down. So I, I can't really comment on the early baseball era other than I think it's really good that baseball is going to uh, really start to expand that museum into different types of baseball history, good, bad, or indifferent. Now, as far as the Golden Days era, and this is where everybody's talking about Gil Hodges, and I'll get to Gil Hodges in a minute, but I think there are other players on here, and I don't know if the committee will vote in the deserving players, but I think Minnie Minosa, Dick Allen, and Tony Oliva all deserve strong consideration, and all can be made arguments that they're Hall of Famers. I know Gary Cohen has talked about Dick Allen on the broadcast. Uh, you know, Here's a guy that uh, he's everything that you'd want in a modern-day Moneyball player. Power, on-base percentage. And he put up big numbers in years like 67, 68, when it was all pitching. I mean, in 1968, the year of the pitcher, uh, he's got a 160 OPS+. plus. He's got 33 home runs. He's walked 74 times. Yeah, he struck out a ton in some years, but he actually cut that down as it went later into his career. The knock on him, yeah, he did win an MVP in Chicago with the White Sox, and he won Rookie of the Year. Uh, multiple-time All-Star. He didn't really have a position. Defense wasn't his thing, but you can't argue with the offense. If you're going to put someone like Edgar Martinez, a DH, and potentially David Ortiz in as a uh, Hall of Famer, I mean, look, you got to put Dick Allen in. So that's the end of that discussion. Minnie Minosa, I think he has some historical significance. He wound up playing until he's 54. He played one era in the 70s at 50, in, the 19, uh, in 1976, and the 1980, he played at 54. Didn't get a hit after the age of 50. He was 0 for 10, and I think he got... Oh, no, he got one hit in 1976. I'm sorry. But uh, when you look at him, again, a guy that... A good fielder, you know, speed, power, triples in a, you know, a different era of baseball with triples were a thing. Walked way more than he struck out on base guy. Really solid, uh, you know, guy that... Uh, Cuban player in a time where they weren't like players coming over from Cuba... You know, obviously, earlier in his career, he's under the whole you know segregation situation because you know that was what was going on. Uh, guy didn't really start playing in baseball until he's 25. If he was able to play in the league, who knows how much better his numbers were? So to me, Minnie Minosa should get in, and Tony Oliva, another guy that probably because he was in Minnesota doesn't get as much play. Power, uh, gap to you know doubles guy, uh, multiple time All Star, won a Gold Glove. Again, I didn't see these guys play, so I'm just going by numbers. But I look at the numbers, and I say to myself, these are these are not whole of very good guys. They, you've already kind of gone where you've hugged on the whole of very good. So as, lo- as long as you don't go too into the whole of very good, I don't have a problem with that. Now, I don't think all three of these guys will get in. If you told me the one that has to get in that's not named Gil Hodges, Dick Allen by far. And if he doesn't get in, shame on the committee for multiple uh, reasons. So now let's get to Gil Hodges. So... You know, I don't have the love and this, like, you know, gotta get Gil Hodge in the Hall of Fame like the old Brooklyn Dodger guys and the old-time Mets fans, and that's easy, you know, for them because they saw him, but, and I've waffled on this for many, many years. Gil, Gil's numbers post-retirement were very good for that time. It was a guy, his first baseman with power, and over the years, because of a variety of reasons, time, number one. Evolution in health, steroids, smaller ballparks, expansion. His offensive numbers don't look the same. But Vince Scully, who is baseball royalty in my opinion, and it's still going at it at 94 years old. If you, when I think of baseball and announcers, like Vince Scully is it. 
yeah, I got, I grew up with Bob Murphy. I grew up with, you know, obviously Gary Cohen and Gary Keith and Ron. And I always feel like the Mets, we've been blessed with such great announcers. But Vince Scully's baseball royalty. And I don't think that that's a controversial thing to say. And that to me is, you strive to be that guy if you want to be a broadcaster. The way he delivered, his his ease and his style, like just everything. I mean, when I think of the 1986 Mets and the World Series, I think of Vince Scully. I really do. I don't think of the Bob Murphy call. I think of the Vince Scully call. Whatever. So another story for another day. But uh, over, uh, Vince Scully decided to uh, really stump for Gil Hodges, who he saw as a young player. Now remember something about Gil. Gil, similar to, just like some of those Negro League players, some of these African-American players, started late. Now he, for a different reason, he went into the military, like a lot of players had to go into the military. And he won a Bronze Star, I believe, which I did not know. I should have known this. He won a Bronze Star for, uh, uh, and I'm trying to find it here. Where was it here? Uh, Bronze Star. Let's see. I think it was Okinawa. Bronze. Yeah, he won a Bronze Star at Okinawa while putting his baseball career on hold. Yeah, so he was in in the Marines. you got to give the guy a ton of credit. Uh, You know, that's a hero. That's probably the best accomplishment of his career. When you want to talk about all the things you put together, I you see how Scully talked about how he helped Jackie Robinson with the integration into baseball. Guys like he and Ralph Brank, I mean, the perfect team that really understood, you know, guys that lived in the area, understood the New York melting pot. Perfect team for Jackie to come into. Great off the field situation. He was a really good offensive player. All-star, won a gold glove a couple of times. Sure, when they went from Brooklyn to L.A., and I don't really know, you know, what the ballpark effect would be with Ebbets Field versus Dodgers Stadium when they actually played in that crazy coliseum for a few years when Gill went out there. I'm sure that didn't help him at all. But think about it. You you live in Brooklyn. You'll have your whole life in Brooklyn. You get transported 3,000 miles west at a time when the West Coast was this unknown entity. Really, think about it. It's going to have a, an adjustment period. I'm sure if you know, Gill was around today, it would be an interesting conversation to have with him. But then you also factor in what he did as a manager. He took a Mets team that was a laughingstock, couldn't get out of its own way. And granted, it had Seaver and Kuzman and, and had these great pitchers, Nolan Ryan. But he won a championship with them and cleaned up things. We're talking about Buck Showalter and how they have to clean up the 77-win team with this talent. This guy cleaned up a team with almost a decade of losing mentality, albeit with some really historic Hall of Fame players in the rotation. But that, to me, is the cherry on top. So he's a military hero. He's a very good offensive player. A team in Brooklyn that won a World Series in 55. Uh, you know, multiple times he was in the MVP conversation. He never won one. Gold glove. And he was actually elected into the Hall of Fame about two decades ago. But Ted Williams, who for some reason didn't want him in, I think, I've heard, negated Roy Campanella's vote. I understand Campanella's biased. He was his teammate. But because Campanella was remote. Think about today. Think about where we are today, where everyone wants to zoom their life away. That Ted Williams, about two, about 20-something years ago, wouldn't let Campanella send his vote in absentee ballot. Think of all the talk about absentee ballots in our world today. Just for a Hall of Fame vote, Ted Williams wouldn't do it. Uh, crazy. So he really, he's he should be in the Hall of Fame. He was, he was I mean, that's that story's out there. So I don't have a problem with him making it. I wonder how the committee is going to look at these players. Like, how big do they want to have a ceremony in one year? Let's make no mistake about it. And these things come up every so many years. So if these guys don't get in, um, you're going to have to wait a few years. I think it's three or four years. You had the shutdown and everything, and then you had the Jeter thing 
come back and Jeter was, you know, no, they weren't going to put anybody in with Jeter because whatever this odd obsession with Jeter is, they were going to make him be the star of the show. Now you have, hopefully, an opportunity to get Cooperstown back to some normalcy this coming summer. And, you know, you want to have seven, eight, nine, ten. I mean, you, you elect three. If you elect who I told you you should elect, off the bat, that puts four guys in. And then you have the Negro League players from the early era, you know, potentially maybe some other guys. You, know, you could have like eight, nine guys in the Hall of Fame. Now, it would be really cool as a, hey, the Hall of Fame's back. We're open kind of celebration along with the regular Hall of Fame, whoever gets in. That's another conversation for another day. But I don't know if that's what they want to do. I think they like to space it out. So I wonder politically if a Dick Allen and some of the Negro League players will make them rethink Hodges and say, can we wait a little more? I mean, he's not alive anymore, so it's not like you have to wait. I mean, neither is uh, uh, a Dick Allen. I think Dick Allen passed away as well. Uh, yes, he passed away, unfortunately, last year. Um, so this is all, uh, you know, posthumously. So, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, be interesting how they look and, 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 and how they view this. I told you all those guys deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. I haven't seen not one of them play. I think Gil, you have to look at not just from his play on the field, but his context in terms of, and it's very important. We always talk about integrity, and I always say you got to throw integrity out because of steroids and everything. But if integrity is going to be part of it, and so many writers make it part of it, why do we only look at integrity when it's a negative? Why don't we look at it as a positive? A war hero, a guy that helped with the integration of the game, a guy that by all standards was a leader and led a historic team. I mean, there's many historic components to his baseball career and life. I mean, to me, that's what you're looking for in the Hall of Fame. And the Hall of Fame is not going to be watered down because Gil Hodges is in it. Whatever Ted Williams' reason was for what he was doing, he was a Hall of Famer. It was a, you know, a discrepancy, let's say, that kept him out, which is a shame. But that's baseball for you. That's baseball for a long time. And I think uh, I'm going to be awaiting it. I don't know when they're going to announce it. Probably it'll be announced by the time you listen to this. And we'll have reaction, and we'll talk about it, and and we'll see where it goes. But those are those are my thoughts on the Hall of Fame vote. I wanted to round out this show with some of that, and hopefully you enjoyed it, and uh, and away we go. All right, we're gonna wrap up here. I've been keeping you for probably well more than the hour. What's next? Well, we're gonna get into the lockout. We're gonna try to uh, see what uh, we're gonna look under the hood and see how baseball could solve their problems. And I'd be really interested to see how deep into the spring. I shouldn't say the spring, deep into the winter, this will go and how committed the players are to real change. Whatever they feel the change is, and I know competitiveness is that, and I don't, again, I don't want to get too deep into it. Uh, you know, how does that align with what they're trying to do for the union going forward in terms of salaries and salaries at specific stages of, the, of players' career? Because players seem to be getting the lion's share of their money when they're maybe trending at the peak to down, but that's a different story to a different day. So, We'll talk more about that. We'll see where the Mets managerial search goes. And look, even though we're going to be lockout, and every time I come on now, I'm going to do just like lockout day five, lockout day, whatever, just for fun. You know, lighten the mood a little bit. Get a chuckle as we sit here in the frozen tundra of winter here in New York and wait for the, you know, baseball was on pause for COVID a couple of years ago. Now baseball's on pause for labor strife. We sit back and then we'll get back to the uh, the task at hand, which is building the 2022 Mets and putting the most competitive roster together. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Of course, you can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. 
Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Thank you again to the good folks over at Fansided, the podcasting network, and check out the good folks over at RisingApple.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. credit card bill.